Welcome to the April 2014 episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Ailey Dalgan. This month, the adverse health effects of being an HIV elite controller. The further we've studied them and the longer we've studied them, we've realized that there are some residual abnormalities in these patients. How a new blood test can diagnose Alzheimer's disease years before the onset of any symptoms. We used our work to basically describe what might be a preclinical state uh, of the disease. Plus, the problem with HIV latency-reversing drugs, using circulating DNA to tailor cancer treatment, and a review of the documentary Head Games. But first, dealing with control issues. In the April issue of Nature Medicine, science writer Ala Katznelson tells the story of a unique clinical trial. The trial involves people infected with HIV who manage to keep their viral levels down without the help of antiretroviral drug therapy. These so-called elite controllers have long been thought of as the lucky ones in the HIV community, but that luck comes at a price. You see, the immune activation needed to keep the virus at bay can take its toll on these people's bodies, manifesting as increased risk of heart disease, fibrosis, or other health problems. So that's where this new trial fits in. Physicians at 29 clinical sites all across the United States are now looking for HIV controllers who are willing to try drug therapy for a year. They don't need drugs to fight off the virus, of course. Their immune systems can do that. But maybe by letting drugs do the work for a while, the immune systems can get a much-needed break. And that, researchers think, might help prevent further health complications. To learn more about the trial, I spoke with principal investigator Paul Sachs. He's the clinical director of the HIV program at the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. We chatted last month at the annual conference on retroviruses and opportunistic infections here in Boston, and he started by laying out the case for the trial. People who are elite controllers are those who are able to control the virus without HIV medications. They're a very small percentage of the people with HIV. Usually we estimate less than 1%. And for many years we thought, they're the lucky few who don't need drug therapy, and they're maybe you know, as normal as people who are HIV negative. But the further we've studied them, and the longer we've studied them, we've realized that there are some residual abnormalities in these patients. In particular, some experience CD4 decline and can actually get HIV disease. And then also they have higher levels of inflammation and immune activation than people who are HIV negative, all of which can eventually lead to things like cardiovascular disease and cancers. And that overactive immune system, that's simply because their body's trying to fight the virus and there's these side effects of that against other organ systems in the body? No, that's the theory. The theory is that that the virus being there and being controlled requires that the immune system be vigilant and active. And that active immune system has correlates like immune activation in other organs or increased inflammatory markers. Specifically, what are some of the health problems that affect elite controllers more so than the general population or other people infected with HIV who are not elite controllers and thus are on antiretroviral therapy? Probably the best studied of them are uh, surrogate markers of cardiovascular disease. And so one of them is the uh, arterial inflammation. It's been shown that elite controllers have higher levels of arterial inflammation when sort of experimental scans are done than people who are HIV negative. And in addition, when you look at their... um, the overall uh, sort of things like like the thickness of the carotid arteries, uh, they also are higher than in HIV-negative controls. All of these suggest that some of this immune activation and inflammation is having a deleterious effect on the cardiovascular system. 
And so that led you and other researchers around the world to, to this idea that maybe, although we've been saying for, for years that these people don't need antiretroviral therapy, maybe by giving them drugs can sort of give their natural defenses a break and, and quiet down this overactive immune system? Yeah, that's the exact hypothesis. And what we're doing is we're studying some elite controllers prospectively. And we're having a period of 12 weeks where we're just basically observing them and also to provide a very good baseline. And then we're starting a very simple, well-tolerated HIV treatment, which is just one pill a day, and measuring how active their immune system is, predominantly through CD8 T-cell activation, but also through looking at inflammatory markers and seeing whether treating them will lead to an improvement in their overall state of immune activation and inflammation. That's the hypothesis, at least. Looking ahead to after your trial's done, and let's say that it matches up to the hypothesis and you see these beneficial effects on, um, on some of the markers of cardiovascular disease and other things, what are we left with in terms of the messaging for this, this population who both are the lucky few, they, they don't need drugs to control the virus, but then there are these consequences of that what are doctors left to tell these patients of what they need to do to maintain the, the optimal health? What's required is going to be a very open and uh, candid discussion with them that um, is at the appropriate level so that patients can understand to discuss the potential risks and benefits of going on therapy. Let's imagine that it does improve markers of immune activation. Uh, what I would imagine myself doing with my patients is saying, look, these are the results we see a favorable direction in markers of immune activation. We would hope that this would translate over time into reduced risk of things like cardiovascular disease, but we don't yet know. And so ultimately the decision about whether to go on treatment is yours. And it would also include a frank discussion about the risks and benefits of therapy. This is a little different though from what we were doing five years ago when we would encounter an elite controller where we would say pretty confidently, look, you don't need therapy, isn't that great? You're probably going to be just as healthy as a person who's HIV negative, and don't worry about it. Um, that was probably a little bit too confident a statement because the further we study these people, the more subtle abnormalities we find. Paul Sachs speaking with me at the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. Also at CROI, I had the chance to catch up with Bob Silicano. He's an HIV researcher at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and the senior investigator of a new paper in Nature Medicine. As he and his colleagues report, it seems that the promising drugs researchers thought might be helping to purge HIV from its latent reservoir might not be so promising after all. Most of these so-called latency-reversing agents were identified using cultured T-cells infected with HIV. In a new kind of assay, Silicano and his colleagues instead tried testing these drugs on resting T-cells taken directly from HIV-infected patients. The disappointing finding was that the agents that have been identified by many groups, including our own, uh, using these uh, in vitro models, uh, with one exception, really don't um, turn on latent HIV in cells from patients, at least uh, to the extent that uh, the positive control, which is T-cell activation, does. There may be some very slight induction with some of the agents, but the only thing that really, the only agent that really induced a significant increase in HIV gene expression uh, was a compound called bryostatin, which um, is a protein kinase C agonist and uh, which induces some degree of, of T cell uh, activation. 
Now, the most famous agent that I know of is Varinostat, also known as Saha, and, and that has been tried in patients, and indeed people have seen um, slight increases in RNA levels um, from HIV, making them think that it is reversing the latency to some extent. How does that jive with what you're showing from your ex vivo assay suggesting that, that it doesn't work? Yeah, so, so, so Varinostat is a, a histone deacetylase inhibitor, and there um, are studies suggesting that it can upregulate HIV gene expression in vivo in patients. Now, the level of induction is quite low, um, and as I mentioned in our ex vivo studies, some of the agents have uh, very slight activity on their own, um, but as compared to uh, global T-cell activation, um, the, the level of induction by single latency-reversing agents is, is very low. Uh, so really, that's, the problem is, is, is sort of one of scale, I think. So when I read your paper, it's kind of depressing because one of the take-homes seems to be that none of the drugs that we thought was working as a latency-reversing agent might actually be all that efficacious. Of course, there's, a, there's another conclusion that here's a test where we can screen for better drugs. Yes, and I think it's important to, to state that, that what our study says is that as single agents, um, uh, these drugs are not likely to be effective. Uh, but um, we also know um, in, in unpublished work and, and, and I think work that's beginning to come out from other groups that uh, combinations of these agents may actually prove to be quite effective. So I don't think that, um, you know, that we've been misled uh, by these in vitro studies to, to study uh, to, or to identify a bunch of compounds that have nothing to do with latency. Rather, I think uh, that uh, it's just harder to reverse latency in cells from patients and that it may require some combination of these agents. And what we need to do now is figure out an intelligent way to sort of design the best uh, combination uh, therapy approach. And could we use your assay to test drug A with B, drug A with C, drug B with C, and so forth? Yes, absolutely. And we're doing that right now and, and have some very promising results. Bob Silicano. And for more from Croy, be sure to check out my new story on research presented at the meeting showing how long-acting versions of HIV medicines could help overcome the problem of drug adherence. That's in the April issue of Nature Medicine and at nature.com slash naturemedicine. Okay, enough about HIV. To the movies, and a powerful new documentary called Head Games, The Global Concussion Crisis. Nature Medicine's Nicolette Zeliat has this review. Like many kids, I endured my fair share of injuries during childhood. When I was 14 years old, I got struck in the head by a baseball bat. The blow knocked me to the ground, and when I stood up, I was dizzy, but luckily the accident didn't leave me unconscious. At the time, everyone seemed most concerned with the resulting gash above my right eye, a relatively minor external wound for which I received a few stitches. But ever since then, I've often wondered what, if anything, happened internally to my brain. And it seems I'm not alone in thinking about this. And I remember I hit the ground and I forgot where we were. I forgot what we were doing in the ring. I forgot what was coming next. 
That's Christopher Nobinski, a college football player turned pro wrestler, describing what would turn out to be a career-ending injury he sustained during a match in 2003. When his memory problems didn't subside and were accompanied by severe migraines and depression, he decided to seek medical help. That's when he made a startling realization. I had been gladly exposing myself to repetitive brain trauma and concussions for 19 years. That experience led Nowinski to investigate the long-term dangers of repetitive blows to the head among professional football players, a problem many athletes, coaches, and fans had long downplayed or ignored. In 2006, Nowinski published a book on the subject called Head Games, Football's Concussion Crisis. This movie, directed by Steve James, director of the highly acclaimed documentary Hoop Dreams, is an extension of Nowinski's earlier treatise. But as the film makes excruciatingly clear, traumatic head injuries are not limited to the NFL. All athletes who engage in contact sports, be it hockey, rugby, soccer, lacrosse, basketball, you name it, all those athletes are potentially at risk. I know that I've damaged my brain. I don't know where I am 10 years from now. I don't know where I am 20 years from now. That's former pro hockey player Keith Primo, who retired from the NHL in 2006 after a series of severe concussions. In the film, we also meet former Olympic soccer gold medalist Cindy Parlow Cohn, who, like many soccer players, frequently used her head to direct the ball, a practice known as heading. After my first concussion, every time I would do heading, I would see stars. And it's not just professional athletes who are at risk. The problems can start from a very young age. I got hit from behind. People said I was on, I was on the ice for like four or five minutes. I only remember 20 seconds of it. I might look back and say I wished I had stopped him after this last concussion. He loves to play hockey, and we love watching him play hockey. Aside from a few interviews with a number of scientists and clinicians who clearly explain the current scientific understanding of sports-related brain injury, the film mostly features footage of players sustaining injuries during various sporting events and a bunch of athletes giving personal accounts of their injuries. So by the film's end, I was left wondering, what should we do with this information? Should parents let their children participate in contact sports? How many concussions might be too many? And how can we best prevent concussions, or at least identify when they occur during play so that injured players can be identified and removed? As legendary sportscaster Bob Costas sums it up, What's the level of acceptable risk? And what's the level of reasonable reform? Unfortunately, head games provides few answers to these and other difficult questions. And that's in part because, as the film points out, the scientific and clinical understanding of sports-related head trauma lags woefully behind public interest. So it looks like the ball is now in science's court to provide some answers to these and other lingering questions. Nicolette Ziliat. And you can read Nicolette's full review of Head Games on the Nature Medicine blog, Spoonful of Medicine. Keeping on the subject of dementia, we have a paper in this month's issue of the journal on a new kind of blood test that can predict with over 90% certainty whether someone will suffer from dementia and Alzheimer's in the next couple of years. The test relies on the levels of 10 lipids in the bloodstream. It could one day support, or perhaps even supplant, standard neurological exams and brain scans. 
Howard Fedorov is the Executive Vice President for Health Sciences at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., and the senior author of the study. We began to ask, is there a different way? And um, while it, it may be that any number of different approaches could be used, we decided that we wanted a simple, straightforward, non-invasive way, and if we could succeed, that would involve, uh, in effect, uh, measuring something in the blood. What got you interested in these circulating fat molecules as a possible diagnostic biomarker? Well, we started with the premise uh, that there would be something circulating. It could have either been um, in the cellular elements, the white blood cells, or in the non-cellular compartment of the blood. Um, and we decided first to look at the plasma. Um, and uh, to examine the plasma, we used a technique that's called uh, metabolomics. So you had these 500-plus individuals, none of whom had signs of Alzheimer's or dementia, but you followed them through and you had blood tests at each uh, different time point of the study? Yes. Initially, we um, are, were enrolling 525 individuals uh, without uh, the belief that they were cognitively impaired. In individuals whose cognitive status declined, we then had this opportunity to go back at their to their bloods at entry when their cognitive status was normal uh, in order to ask, can we discover something circulating that might have predicted their subsequent phenoconversion or their now new diagnosis? And indeed, you discovered there were 10 lipids that had some predictive value? Yes. Yeah, so we, we, we wound up looking at a number of different things in the blood, metabolites. Um, we wanted to ultimately derive um, a test that would measure a relatively small number of things. Um, and those that were among uh, the most uh, able to discriminate between the so-called phenoconverters, those that went from normal to abnormal compared to, uh, to normal, were, were these 10 lipids. How much earlier would the signs of early dementia show up in your lipid tests? Uh, the average length of time between um, those who did phenoconvert um, uh, to now having uh, mild cognitive impairment or Alzheimer's was about two years. Now, this study is something of a proof of principle. What follow-up steps still need to be taken before this can really be a bona fide diagnostic test in the clinic? Yeah, well, we, we, we think that there are, are several things that must be done. Number one, we, we need to expand uh, the number of subjects that we're examining to determine whether we can, um, in a in completely indif independent set of individuals, validate the 10 uh, lipid panel. Secondly, we'd like to be able to determine um, in longitudinal cohorts where people had been enrolled and followed for decades whether our test might be positive well in advance of the uh, clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. So does, does the test turn positive? Um, unlike our study, which was in two years, is it positive five years earlier or ten years earlier? We might be in a position to answer that question. And then third, um, our, our cohort was largely Caucasian, and I think it's imperative that we expand the analysis to include a more diverse population to discern whether our test will be useful in the setting of looking at uh, ethnic and racial uh, groups that uh, are different than those that we studied initially. Now, some might say that information is power, but how 
actually actionable is this kind of test, given that we don't currently have anything in the way of an effective therapy that can halt the progress of Alzheimer's? Yeah. Um, if, if the test were one that uh, could be ordered by your doctor and mine, um, I think, number one, uh, it's likely to be a decision about whether to order the test or not uh, that will require some counseling. Because it's, if in the absence of any type of disease-modifying therapeutic option, um, one would need to understand the implications of a positive test and what to do with it. The second um, part of the answer is that uh, given that many Alzheimer's trials uh, testing what might be um, very effective therapeutics in terms of the target of the therapy, but testing in patients who already have disease may have failed because that phase of the disease, when people manifested the symptoms, may have been too late, even if the therapeutic might have worked. So it raises the question, if you have a way of finding people at high risk, can you structure a different type of clinical trial to ask, does an intervention uh, perhaps delay or maybe even uh, prevent the emergence of uh, clinical symptoms? Oh, so even though there's no therapies to give people who test positive today, your diagnostic assay could actually help fuel drug discovery and lead to the next generation of therapies. Uh, we, we used our work to basically describe what might be a preclinical state uh, of the disease. And then having that methodology in hand, we can potentially imagine a trial of the first kind where in individuals who are preclinical for the disease, can you now ask, do you have a therapy that can prevent the emergence of the disease? Howard Federoff. We end this month now with another type of innovative blood test. In the April issue of Nature Medicine, Alain Thierry and his colleagues at the Montpellier Cancer Research Institute in France report the findings of the first blinded prospective study that uses a blood test, not a tumor biopsy, to help tailor drug therapy for people with advanced colorectal cancer. Now, normally doctors would search for mutations in certain genes by sequencing bits of DNA from cells taken directly from a colorectal tumor. Based on the genetic results, they would then prescribe certain drugs that match a patient's unique mutational profile. This works to some extent, but the approach can't detect any mutations that have arisen at metastatic sites and that aren't found in the primary tissue. That's why TRE advocates searching for DNA from cancer cells that are circulating in a patient's blood. By using circulating DNA, you are able to look at all the spectrum of the mutation which can exist in the primary tumor as well as in the metastatic tissue. This kind of blood test also yields results much more quickly than a test based on tumor tissue. We can get the assay in two days as compared to tumor tissue which can be at least for two weeks. But of course the most important question is how accurate is such a blood test? Thierry and his colleagues tested for mutations in two genes using both the circulating DNA method and by directly testing tumor tissue. They looked at 106 patient samples, and when comparing the two methods, they found 100% concordance in one gene, called BRAF, and a near-perfect score for the blood test for seven mutations in another gene called KRAS. This was the first blinded prospective study of its kind. This assay clearly showed the advantage 
of using the circulating DNA as compared to the, the analysis of tumor tissue. So it can be uh, implemented in uh, every clinical laboratory. TLE expects the approach to be available for clinical use within one or two years. We'll be watching for it, but for now, that's it for this episode of the Nature Medicine Podcast. You can find more from the journal on Twitter, Facebook, and on our website, nature.com slash naturemedicine. Until next time, I'm Ailey Dolgan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>